Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I spoke with Mike Wassel. He is the co-founder and CEO of Bracket Labs. Bracket is doing what a lot of folks in DeFi are doing these days and bringing traditional financial products on chain and into the DeFi world. In the case of Bracket, they're doing it with options strategies and they're trying to mainstream leverage structured products. I know that might sound scary to some of you if you know what happened in the financial crisis and how structured products can get very complicated and risky. But by being on chain, Bracket is able to have kind of bumpers on uh, its trades so that if you're in a range with some options contracts, you can bet, for example, that you think Ethereum is going to stay around the $1,800 range, which it's been doing for months now. And if you had that trade on at Bracket, you could be making money um, through that sideways kind of lack of volatility. So we talked about that. We talked about Mike's time at Bloomberg, uh, where he was an analyst in the compliance department. Um, And we talked about uh, just his kind of the regulatory environment that they're seeing right now in the United States, which, uh, as you know, is quite bleak. Uh, as, as a case uh, in point, um, Bracket is not offering its services to anybody in the U.S. and they're, they're going offshore. So you've heard a lot about that. Here's a case of, of it in, in the real world. Um, we had just a good long conversation and, uh, you know, the kind of takeaway was that uh, Bracket Labs is trying to make structured products fun. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Let's get to it. Thanks. Hey, Mike. Thanks for coming on the show. Welcome. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I've been uh, excited to talk to you. Uh, we have uh, some common uh, work experience uh, at, at Bloomberg, and uh, you were around at Consensus at a time when I knew most of the folks over there. So I've uh, been looking forward to, to hearing your story. Um, I thought to kind of jump in, though, um, because regulation is a bit yeah. of a top of mind right now, we might talk about that. Uh, and I'd love to hear your take on where the U.S. is right now, because what you guys are doing at Bracket Labs uh, seems to me, you know, you're offering kind of sophisticated products on chain uh, that are structured and, and have leverage. So I'm sure you guys are uh, mining your P's and Q's on the regulatory front. So, for sure. so w- what is, um, what's the lay of the land like right now, in your opinion, in the U.S. Um, for crypto? You know, the U.S. has been a little disappointing, to be honest. There's a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of clarity in, in how things are, are being treated. I think in the vacuum that Congress has ultimately created uh, by not passing good legislation. They had they have had plenty of time to do it, to be honest. They basically left the room for these agencies to go uh, you know above and beyond a lot of people what a lot of people think is their you know jurisdiction and kind of making rules, which is, you know, they're supposed to be enforcing and you know they have a they have a uh, you know they're trying to force compliance with regulations, but the law is kind of like a blurry line, right, between regulation and law. It's like what is new, what is not new. And you know, the SEC is asserting certain things, CFTC asserting others. Um, I think on the good side, we've seen a couple of positive things happen. So number one is the uh, CFTC has created a working group uh, specifically for digital assets and has invited um, several uh, companies from the digital asset space, including Uniswap. I think they have some folks that sit there. And um, you know, there's been a couple of bills that have been posited by House Republicans, I believe, um, but I don't know if they're going to really get anywhere after they, even if they pass the House. Yeah, we've been um, reporting on that. Yeah, they've been introduced in committee, but you know, yeah. that, uh, if anyone knows how Congress works, you know, that's the very first step of a long. I know process. it's it's a long process, and you know, it's really split on party lines. You have you know uh, Patrick McHenry, who's basically saying, "Hey, we need legislation. We're trying to push this forward," and then you have ranking member, you know, Waters on the other side saying, "Like, hey, we've been." "Quote unquote," trying to work diligently on this for 15 months or something, and you know this is a move to destabilize our markets, and you know that's all very concerning to see that it's that split. But in the meantime, I mean, you have giant companies like PayPal who are looking at crypto and saying, "Hey, you know the real, the real uh, product market fit, the real killer app is stablecoins and payments." Kind of always has been right. that for the longest time, and so that's. Uh, I think like those guys are are seeing and, and seeing that and saying, hey, we're going to just take a little bit of a risk here working with Pax- Paxos. As you know, Paxos has been, um, they worked with Binance and were kind of told to shut them. You know, I don't know if they were told to shut them down, but it was definitely an act um, of government, you know, saying, hey, we got to we got to get this under control. And, yeah. and so I'm, I'm really curious to see how that, that plays out. 
Isn't it interesting, though, that we all get excited about PayPal coming into this, yes. which is a centralized authority that can censor your, your you know, <laughs> transactions, everything yeah. that crypto was not supposed to be. And yeah, yet we're seeing point. this as like a shining light, you know, that PayPal is going to come in and make it OK for everybody. I think the, the primary reason for that is because the DeFi ecosystem and even the Web3 ecosystem as it is, I mean, let's look back uh, like three years, right, as as um, as we saw the kind of. Uh, boom in DeFi summer, the original just experimentation of on-chain finance stuff. Then we saw uh, NFTs as digital assets, you know, natively digital assets. As a, so these are all like these proto versions of what eventually will happen. But the user base is still very small. It's a yeah. pond, you know, it's a tiny pond. And so I think what people are excited about is the general acceptance of Ethereum as the as the foundational chain. Um, yeah, which is a lot layer, of, basically, right? yeah, it's base layer and it's, it's a huge vote of confidence in its security. And then, then the second thing is just the increasing of the pie. We need the pie to get bigger. Um, there's so many creative, I mean, even ourselves, like so many creative, innovative products, but, um, without clarity or a big enough pond, essentially you have trouble getting traction and you have trouble getting the t- type of buy-in that you need from global economies beyond the United States. But yeah, the U, that's a good point about, about PayPal. It does have censorship built in, but most of the major stable coins have blacklisting built in as well. So they do have this almost in, you know, programmatic AML a little bit um, in, incorporated. So it is a, an existing systemic risk across yeah, all of crypto today, even on Ethereum. Yeah. I take your point too, because like you're saying, like the purely decentralized, um, you know, apps that are out there and, and things you can use are, you know, appeal to a very small group of people. And I think maybe um, uh, yeah. to go back a little bit on what I said, maybe the PayPal's of the world are needed to sort of bridge people into this. And then, you know, yeah. they can then go and get more confidence and start using Uniswap or start using Bracket Labs. Yeah, start um, using anything. I mean, right. th- and there's so many great utilities that are built in DeFi from, you know, playing markets uh, to to earning you know base rate you know in, in liquid staking and things, and that's why we're seeing uh, what we're seeing. It's basically a reach from the corporates who are saying, well, our business model is going to be under threat if we don't do something. Yeah. And then you have Circle who's saying, well, we need to get more users, and I think that competitiveness is going to make this pie a lot bigger over the next five year time horizon. Um, not to say we're not going to have hiccups and issues, especially in, U- in the U.S., because there is no MICA standard that is put a goal on X, Y, and Z. There is no What's U.S. VAS. for people who might Oh, know. sorry. Yeah, the EU basically has put put forward their um, revised transfer of fund regulations for crypto assets, like mm-hmm. travel rule, which basically says, hey, over a certain threshold, you need to have X, Y, Z, like KYC, AML requirements. And that basically underpins virtual asset service service providers, which the rest of the world are pretty much, are, are, is pretty much adopting, you yeah. know, the standard that um, uh, the regulator in Europe, um, FATF, FATF, has put forward, like, hey, here are the standards for VASPs. Um, and mo- most of the world that kind of copies that or in the or member states are going to adopt it. Um, and so U.S. is very much behind. I think most people see, or most, sorry, most, um, you, know, you know, congressional leaders see that we're behind. They just don't know exactly how to do this or they're hesitant to do this depending on what aisle uh, what side of the aisle they're on because it's a massive it's a massive move you know it's yeah. a massive move to digital assets i agree and i was going to ask if so the sec basically is getting its authority here from the securities exchange act which is dates right. the 30s and then also yep. the howey decision which was a court decision that created the howey test about what is a security um are those are, are those things okay are, are those um you know uh, is that a good foundation here or, or or do we need a whole new set of laws to, you know, address yeah. smart contracts and um, yeah. you know, the way that things can, like there might not be an intermediary in some of these transactions. And that's not something right. I think that um, the securities laws are built for. So it sounds like you're saying, and I think I'd agree with you, we need a new set of laws uh, yeah, to, we to do. address this. Yeah, I think the reasonable thing to do would be to revise the law and say how we test, you know, makes sense for traditional securities with traditional intermediaries, broker dealers, and, and that's, you know, 
and what have you. But if you kind of extend those laws or those those uh, standards to um, crypto, you start to see where it doesn't really make sense. And it's not that crypto. I think there are bad actors in crypto, just like. Every, you know, people from the outside listening to this, they might say, hey, you know, crypto has a lot of scams and a lot of issues. And I absolutely agree with you. There's a lot of that going on, but it's not happening because it's, you know, and that, that's happened. That happens in every industry that's financial, right? It's always happened. You, you're probably a, yourself a historian of financial happenings, right? And, and that is the truth. When there's a vacuum, a regulatory vacuum, generally people take advantage of the loophole. It's a very cutthroat um you know, zero sum type of industry. Yeah, and that's exactly but, why there are all these regulations that we're talking about in the first right, place. Right, it's because like, they, they yeah, the, the bucket shops of the twenties. Right. You know, they're like, okay, we can't have this anymore because it led to one of the largest financial collapses in the world. And now, you know, we had Dot Frank after two thousand eight, and now we need something for crypto that puts up the bumper lanes. Now everyone wants the bumper lanes. I think they just don't want to be completely shut off from the bowling alley. Yeah. I think that's what the problem is now. It's like with this new, we had we had this case come across with the U.S. District Judge, uh, Annalisa Torres, for Ripple, which is this long. For those who are listening who are not familiar, it's this long-standing case with the SEC, basically SEC suing Ripple, saying, "Hey, you sold securities," and Ripple basically, you know, uh, you could say, "quote unquote," won that exchange over after many years, saying that the way that those uh, assets were sold. Um, where, where there was no expectation of profit, the, the, you know, the actual token itself to retail, but you know they did violate SEC norms and in sales to um, institutional folks, which is a in most people, in most uh, pundits' mind in crypto is a massive success, but yeah. that'll be challenged because there's plenty of cases in the same court that are challenging what a security is in crypto, and that's still an ongoing thing. So to summarize, I do think that we need a new set of rules that basically. Under has a better understanding of or takes into account the the nature of decentralized um, finance, the nature of smart contracts. Nothing is, there's a spectrum of decentralization, but I think what we don't want to have happen is trying to stuff DeFi into the broker dealer box, or at least if you are going to do that, have a separate set of rules that are a little bit more, I wouldn't say lax, but just understanding that it's not, you know, 1985 anymore. And we can't, you know, the average company is not going to, you know, be able to afford a $5 million licensing process. It takes years. And I think several jurisdictions around the world have um, been very open to that. Um, Dubai, you know, the VARA regulator over there, mm -hmm. virtual asset regulator. And um, some other regions are actually quite open to not having double jeopardy. Like if it, if it falls under a virtual asset service provider type business, you, that's all you need to do. There's no additional security licensing, securities licensing. And, you know, unfortunately, doing that disrupts um, the status quo. And that's a huge problem for special interests in our government in the United States and around the world in many places where they're very competitive. They have a lead. They don't want to disrupt the status quo. Yeah. So it is a massively disruptive force. And that's why I think the U.S. is taking its its time. And I, I highly doubt we'll see something um, super positive come out in this administration with the, yeah. except maybe, maybe with stable coins. But other than that, I don't think we'll see anything. There's a lot of money at stake here. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Know, a yeah. lot of market share. And I mean, we're talking about payments, you know, we're talking, we're talking about the biggest business in the world yeah. that are yeah. basically um, <clears throat> uncensorable. So yeah. we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more later, but with Bracket, what you guys are doing is you're offering um, mainstream leveraged uh, structured products um, right. in a decentralized yeah. way um, that like so you can leverage options strategies, which is, you know, quite complicated. And usually that's the realm of very sophisticated investors. But just to stay on the regulation topic for one second, how are you going about that um, and hoping to yeah. offer these products in the United States uh, yeah. when usually you have to be like an accredited investor or you have to, you know, um, have a certain amount of money and, and there are the kind of tests that, that are done so that, you know, mom and pop folks don't get in here and lose their life savings. So how are right. you um, walking that line? Regulatory so as of wise? now, we do not offer our products to U.S. US citizens, Canadian citizens, restricted countries, OFAC list members. We're actually extremely restrictive um, in what we, where, you know, how we offer products, um, primarily because of the reasons you, you noted that there's, first of all, there's no clear delineation between DeFi and finance right now. So it's kind of uh, regulation by enforcement. And second, because it just doesn't make sense to take that risk and nor do we want to. And we're also in the process of, you know, setting up in a more, uh, I guess, uh, a friendly region to 
sit under the you know compliance that we that we can there. The, the big thing here is that I think companies like ourselves and ourselves we want to be compliant, right? We want to go to a place where we can operate. And right now, you're we're being forced offshore to to do anything, even if we're not servicing the US. Right. It's very frustrating because it's not like we don't want to be compliant. Even if like I'd love to offer services in the US, we just can't. Right. It's just not it's just not something we can do. And so, you know, the way we're doing it is basically saying, well, we're going to have to go offshore. And maybe that's what they wanted. Right. They we're very small. We have no there's no you know, we're, we're super tiny. We're, we're basically at the moment still experimental. But um, they you know, they I'd imagine they don't regulators don't want to see like larger DeFi protocols, ones that have like billions of dollars in them. Um, those who are systemically become systemically important, um, you know, hurt us investors and i understand that's a reasonable need but in order to kind of foster innovation here you need to engage with the community engage with the uh, you know engage with the in, um, industry and present some reasonable ways to stay compliant without being attacked and it's the last thing i think the industry needs to see more and more DeFi products just get get smashed because they they were you know um not following the rules that they don't even know. You know, they're driving on a highway, they don't know the speed limit. And so yeah. it's basically forcing companies like ourselves to just say, hey, we're kind of just not offering services here and we're moving. And was um, that always the yeah. was that always the plan or did this change when sort of the regulatory environment shifted or were you guys always going to start offshore and then hope to bring it to the US? Yeah, I think once- we always really thought about like in the very beginning we said, hey, maybe we can um we can see how how it plays out, right? Because things change pretty quickly. But as we realized that the the regulators were not going to budge on some of these issues, it was just a dog and pony show to show that they're supporting the industry or not or whatever. We said, hey, uh, we're going to just have to be offshore completely, test our assumptions in markets that are more favorable to us, and then hopefully bring it back in a regulated compliant package, whether that be a VASP offshore, like somewhere like the BVI, or um, hopefully the U.S. is is, you know, uh, it has got something by then, but if they don't mm. going through a, a traditionally licensed company who wants to move into DeFi, but as, at the current rate, we don't see any path forward to actually offer services in the U S to us customers in the short term. So where are you going to, um, offer services like uh, in other parts of the world? Or yeah, where, I think our primary like audience ordering somewhere like the British right. version. Um, or? we're in the process of that. So I, I can't really speak to it yet, but the, um, the, the markets that make the most sense are the ones that are like most open. So for instance, um, Asia, there are certain Asian you know, regions that are quite um, open to these, these types of products. Uh, there are some, you know, some European countries that are open to these types of products and it's up to the customer to know their own um, kind of their own regulatory climate. You know, mm-hmm. they don't, they should, they should follow our terms of service, not use VPNs and that stuff too to uh, access the services. And I think that's the primary concern in DeFi is that while we can, and every company really, you know, you're putting forward your rules, you're putting forward your terms, you're trying to block uh, the right people. Um, you know, people can interact with smart contracts and things of that nature. And so it's a blurry line. And I think the best thing, you, you know, we, we could do is, is pursue a regulatory environment, a regulated environment, perhaps a vast when, um, you know, when, when we, you know, it's like a six month process to get yeah. that in, tour, in order to get uh, approved to kind of operate with larger institutional money or with um, accredited investors. But for now, you kind of have to just go where the markets are a little more allowing and test in a small, much tiny, like in a, basically a puddle. Right. And that's the, that's the unfortunate that's part point. is that you're testing in a puddle, you know? Right. Right. A very small sample size. So it's, a, yeah. it's an interesting point um, you bring up about people being able to interact with smart contracts because, you know, like tor- tornado cash is still out there. You can still yeah. go use it. Um, yeah. You can't take that down. You're, you know, you're probably going to get in trouble <laughs> if you do. Um, but, and then also I, I think just, this is the problem right now is that you guys are U.S. you know folks. You want to be creating this here in, in the United States, can't. but you can't. And no. it's like that lack of clarity and the the slowness um, on the part of Congress, and then the uh, you know overzealous enforcement at the SEC is. To an ex- I mean, you're a prime example of, of what people are talking about. It's like this stuff is yeah. moving offshore, but it's not stopping. And so, no, think, it's absolutely not yeah. stopping. We've, you know, just to be clear, we, we've never offered services to U.S. customers. But even even if we wanted to, we'd have to go back through a regulated entity, through a you know someone who already has it, and that's fine. You know, at that point, if there's enough market interest in these areas, then that's worth the the partnerships, worth the money, it's worth the whatever. But in the very beginning of any kind of company that's trying to innovate, you just 
you know, it costs millions of dollars to do some of these, to go through some of these processes. Whereas the rest of the world is moving to more of a vast structure that maybe only costs a hundred thousand, which is not great mm-hmm. either, but it's not the end of the world. You know, it's a half a year process, hundred thousand or whatever. So it takes time to get it. And like a lot of these regions have just started to put them in place to put a number on that. Um, 98 of, sorry, only about 11 of the 98 FATF members of that, you know, regulatory body have even gotten close to the compliance requirements that they've set forth. Yeah. So it's actually a minority of places and a minority of companies who are registering, usually those who are very well resourced, who can afford it and manage it and do all the little things that need to be done. And, but we welcome as a company, like we welcome regulation. We welcome, uh, you know, going to these areas where it's compliant, um, you know, BVI, all these, you know, Dubai, because, uh, it gives clarity and it allows you to take in capital. Um, you know, and that's just been a struggle because the the world of DeFi has split into two bodies, right? It's split into this wild west utility body where it's like, nope, we're going to be open. We're going to be completely decentralized as much as we can be, you know, as much as anyone, I guess, could be in operating anything like that. But also just offering it to anybody with very, very few restrictions, maybe some programmatic restrictions on, you know, restricted lists or OFAC or something, some blacklists, but otherwise being completely open. And then others who are offering maybe a more uh, tailored product for an institutional or accredited investor who goes through the traditional KYC AML things. And as you know, it's very difficult and challenging to do traditional KYC and AML on a, on a, on a, on a wallet without linking it to a real identity. You just can't really do that. And so it does require the traditional tools. And at, you know, at that point you end up, um, there's a lot of the DeFi audience that just doesn't want to do that right now. And that will change for sure. But if you want to do anything in DeFi, it's like, uh, it's going to be a tiny, tiny pond until, uh, the rest of the world can kind of operate in it safely. So actually, you know, for us, we're saying, hey, we kind of embrace that. We want that to happen ultimately. And we want to get there. It's just a process to get the appropriate things to make it happen. So let's go back a little bit, Mike, um, to before you were um, at Bracket and, and the co-founder and CEO. What, what, um, what were you like as a kid? Were you always financially minded or what was, uh, how, what kind of started you on this path? You know, I was always pretty entrepreneurial. I've always been involved in little businesses, working, you know, for myself, um, creating stuff just to just to make money for my for myself. I always really kind of wanted to be my own boss. It wasn't more or less about making a fortune. It was about just having the freedom and autonomy. But yeah, as a as a kid, I wasn't the most financially minded. I guess I wasn't always like a markets person. That changed probably when I was in college. Um, you know, as, as Throughout high school, I was, you know, I was working in the business club and things like that. So just business minded. But it wasn't until um, college that I discovered markets, really. And what and was it? Yeah. What, what intrigued you about that discovery? What, what, what aspect of it? Um, I think it was just the accretive nature of finance, you know, reading, reading books about how compound interest works. I think that was the number one driver of like, oh, wow, you can, you know, build wealth over time. And of course my generation doesn't necessarily, I'm 32 and, and my generation didn't exactly have the same experience as previous generations in that wealth building, you know, um, uh, you know, wealth, wealth building path, but at least I understood the concepts and how to apply them. And so I started looking more deeply into how I would eventually get involved there. Cause at first I was not eager to be involved in finance. You know, I was coming out, of, I graduated high school in 2009. So coming out of the, of the, of the recession, I was pretty bitter to the financial industry and kind of the greed and very frustrated about that. What did that look like to you as a high school student going through the, the financial crisis? Yeah. I mean, luckily um, my family wasn't as affected as, as some others might've been like job wise. My dad is a dentist. So it was a, a slightly less, you know, impactful thing as local business essentially. Right. So mm-hmm. it was pretty isolated, but when it comes to just systemic threats to, um, to people that I knew in my community, it was a big deal. And a lot of people had trouble with college and couldn't go on trips and, you know, just just basic things that you, you kind of start noticing. And then, then you start noticing real destitution, you know, Hey, we got to move and things of that nature. And so it did affect me. I saw the back in the day, the Occupy Wall Street stuff. And I was like, wow, this is, this could have been prevented. And it's, I see some of the repeat of that now because, you know, regulators have been asleep at the wheel for whatever reason 
they I felt the, no need to step in and say, hey, this is what's going to be. There's the clarity. Let's go, right? For whatever reason, we, we've kind of discussed that. Well, I think the reason is, yeah. pretty, I mean, it's money, you know. Yeah, like, of course. That, there was, yeah. um, you know, there were moves in legislation uh, at, at the, you know, midnight hour to, uh, you know, for example, um, you know, the over-the-counter derivatives market was exempted from all sorts of yeah. regulations. And that's one of the, you know, major yeah. problems uh, in, in the financial crisis. Of course, there was, you know, horrible lending practices, but yeah. the OTC market... Central clearing, you know, all that like, stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and that yeah. was because the banks were making a, a shit ton of money in that right. business. I mean, the interest rate swap money. desk, yeah. you know, at ICAP was called Treasure Island for a reason, you know, <laughs> those yeah. guys. Making insane money easy money printing it. And basically that never mm -hmm. lasts. I mean, I didn't, at the time, I don't think I was sophisticated enough to understand what was going on. But when I, when I got into college and started just researching it on my own and understanding all the little bits and pieces that happened, you know, what happened, I, um, I just realized how, uh, how greedy people can be in traditional finance, how opaque those markets can be, but also how restrictive they are to the accumulation of wealth for young people who said, you know, we're going to, you know, we, we were promised after, you know, after the nineties, kind of a better, a better world. Right. And then we had 2001, we had, which, which brought people together, but also created a, you know, would, would ultimately lead to, you know, an insane spend of, of our, of our wealth as America, you know, as America. And then we had, um, you know, the great, you know, we had the recession and then, you know, we have, and now we have COVID. And so there was just these multiple, uh, once in a lifetime events. I think you probably heard that trope before, but these multiple once in a lifetime events that I think really stirred me up. And I said, man, I'd like to see what this is all about because, you know, find the financial markets and the financial world, because it, it was very distant to me. I had no one that actually worked in the industry in my family. And I got this incredible opportunity after high school. So my, you know, my, my dad died when I was 15 oh, and sorry. I, yeah, it's okay. And I, I had no, um, male guidance, like, Hey, this is what you should do. Right. I was trying to figure it out. And I had a very lucky break where I had an opportunity to, in, to interview for an internship at Bloomberg. This was, um, during college, like after college, um, where I, you know, was kind of ambling around. I didn't really have a good direction even in college. And, um, I was, I had the opportunity essentially to, to, to interview for, uh, for a role there, like an internship role. And I was like, you know what, this is, this sounds like way over my pay grade. You know, I was a kid from New Jersey. I wasn't expecting to work in some sort of like financial company. I was not exposed to that at all. I lived in like a pretty rural community in Western central Jersey, probably like I say 15 minutes from Princeton, but realistically it's just, you know, it's, it was a town called Montgomery. It was a real, real, you know, pretty, at that time it was pretty suburban and rural. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, not, it was middle-class for sure, but, um, pretty isolated from the goings on of finance. And so, uh, you know, at that point I had this opportunity and that's kind of how the Bloomberg thing comes up. And what, um, what did you end up doing there at Bloomberg? Right. So this is, this is where maybe my interview skills came in handy. So I, I, I basically had a, at that point realized that compared to my peers, I wasn't, um, potentially the most qualified. I studied business in college and, and English as well, because I was going to do, go, go to a law school, to be honest with you. I was like, you know what? I, I think this could be a good path for me at the time. And, you know, kind of the opposite of, of financial markets. I was looking to do, you know, the, um, be on the other side of the house. Right. And I was like, okay, you know, maybe this is uh, something I want to do. And then by the, by the end of college, I said, you know what, I need to make some money here. Like I need to actually, and I also wanted to just explore explore the industry. Mm -hmm. And so with this opportunity, I said, Hey, why not? Let me try to get in and just understand where I might, if I could fit in this at all, cause it's an opportunity. And it's like one of those things, I forget which comedian said it, but it's like picking up flags. You know, when you have flags in your life that say, Hey, uh, it's time to, it's time to go a different direction. You, you sometimes have to just listen. Yeah. And so I did that. And I, when I came into the intern class, it was me and a bunch of friends. I still hold today. still have a great, great amount of respect. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of that intern class actually is working, are working in crypto at the current moment. Um, yeah. Jan Lieberman, guys like that, who Delphi Labs, like I went to, you know, we, we, we interned together and, uh, or at least worked together. I'm not sure if he was in the intern class, but we did work together uh, for a short time there. It's funny and, you mention that yeah. because like in my, when I was at Bloomberg reporting on market structure, that was my beat. Like a lot of the market structure people that I knew in the industry have now gone into crypto. So I think, you know, like if you know how the markets work or don't work and how they're kind of broken in many ways and then yeah, crypto comes gravitate. along, it looks like a great opportunity. It's a great point. I mean, a lot of those folks did end up being very influential in crypto or getting involved in crypto in some way. And so the, 
path there was basically, hey, I'm not the most, um, I don't think I was the most qualified, to be honest. And I basically told them that in the interview for for the role. And they're like, you know what? We need people that are not necessarily financial uh, or like finance majors. We need to figure out, you know, sometimes we need to figure out other problems and having an outside perspective could be helpful. And so what I ended up doing was working on this small team uh, on the compliance desk, essentially, the message compliance desk. So you might or may have may or may not have run across that team when you were at Bloomberg. Basically, our job was to um, organize and kind of rehash trades that happened on the Bloomberg terminal and messages and kind of put together a picture of what happened for um, tra- head of trading desks and such. And so the enterprise part of that team was called Bloomberg Vault. Yeah, and basically, that was this Dodd Frank compliance team that basically was responsible. And that's like when somebody's got a problem, right? And they need help. pretty much they yeah. come to you with a problem. So I was 22 or whatever years old, you know. Um, and I, I interned just doing basic things at, at Bloomberg before, I guess, before Vault. Actually, I was just doing basic things for, um, you know, looking over Form Fours and all that for and processing them kind of in mass as like a human computer. But you know, I got exposure to what uh, wealthy people were doing you know, how they trade, how they hide things. And it was really kind of scary. I was like, you know, this is a different world for me. It's kind of like the world without training wheels. And, you know, that's stuff they don't teach you in school, no matter what you do. You know, you learn kind of the inside baseball of all that. And when I got the opportunity to actually work full time at the end, that's the, the vault team was kind of the the one that would hire me. And I said, you know what, I'll just do it. Like, why not? This is interesting. And I'll get a, a picture of the world I never had before. And, um, at the time, free snacks and the crazy oh my building God, in New York in Princeton. City work I worked in. in Princeton and New York, mostly in Princeton. And then I did some time in New York with the vault team for meetings and client meetings and such. But yeah, they basically locked you in, right? You, you drove your car up there, you parked yep. it, and you couldn't get out until, <laughs> until, until, they, until you could, you know, until the end of the day. I'm glad to hear you say that because the newsroom is like that. And I've heard that other parts of the company were a little more relaxed. But, um, it, and I remember <laughs> talking about rich people seen like really rich people who'd come in and they'd be on TV and then they'd be walking out with their bag and they would just be putting bag like, you know, cookies and chips and stuff into their. Like, oh yeah. It was their, bizarre. Like, yeah. It's it so bizarre crazy. World. Like you're a billionaire yeah. and you're like, you know, raiding the Bloomberg pantry. Yeah. It was a bizarre world. You had people who were kind of, um, I don't want to say like has been or anything like that. Cause actually most people there are like, are super great people, but a lot of people who had careers in New York who wanted a more quiet life got transferred into the Princeton office mm-hmm. and were working kind of, you know, back office style jobs or occasionally went on TV and did stuff, you know, cause they were area experts. So it's a place, it was also a place for people to kind of coast a little bit. I felt not to say anything bad about Bloomberg. I absolutely loved working there. They gave me my start and they're an incredible company. But, um, you know, it was a weird dynamic at the time, like back in that era. It was a strange dynamic. You had some real hitter people and you had some real kind of lifer people yeah. that that were there the whole, you know. And you should have been there in 2004 when I joined. Um, it was like, go, go, go. It was Everyone like, says that. <laughs> they used to have shoe shine guys that would come through the newsroom and like you, you, you could give them their, your shoes and they'd go take them away and shine them and bring them back. It was like working yeah. at Brooks or um, like, you know, Solomon Brothers, like, yeah, I heard. like Bloomberg did, you know. Yeah, so. I heard that. The early 2000s were an absolute kind of insane period of growth for Bloomberg. And I was kind of at the tail end of that. And so we, you know, terminal sales were kind of leveling off. You know, I I soured to it eventually just because, you know, bonuses, I didn't get it. I mean, I was looking back at like my starting salary was nothing compared to like, say a banker starting salary, but um, because I was basically a data junkie at first, right? A data monkey. And then I eventually moved up to where I was taking, like going to client meetings and such, but, um, and interfacing with clients, like just daily, big, important clients. And, um, yeah, part of that was just realizing, Hey, maybe this golden era of, of this company is coming to a close almost, you know, like things, they were kind of souring to innovation there at the time, you know, not just me, but others had recommended crypto stuff at the time. You know, I remember fighting with people like, I was like, you guys should be on the business side at Bloomberg. They should have been all in on crypto, you know, they should have been, it should have been, it would have been a great opportunity. They they had the opportunity early to basically own it. Um, people like smart people, not I wouldn't say it was my idea at all, but I know smart people, I won't name, but other people who worked at Bloomberg with me who were incredible minds and thinking very far ahead and were like, you need to cover crypto. We need to cover the, you know, the data for, you know, Bitcoin. And it was kind of laughed out of the office at the time. I mean, it was mentioned on TV, like Bloomberg would mention it like, oh, Bitcoin's doing well or Bitcoin's suffering, but it was never, it was just a sideshow. It wasn't any kind of a serious thing. And now they have an entire division. So, you know, uh, covering. I was one of the, I wasn't the first, but I was one of the first reporters to start really covering crypto in 2015. And, um, 
I remember there was just a huge reputational risk, I think, that they had. That they were oh, very, yeah. very scared. Uh, all they could think of was like Silk Road and Mount Oh, Gox yeah. And, That's you know, the narrative. It still yeah. is a narrative for a lot of people. I mean, I think it's changing now because people are starting to see the adoption uh, and the institutional trusted parties, like saying, hey, this is something we want to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the, like the level of cope we're at is like a six out of 10, seven out of 10 where people are saying, you know what, it's just another asset class, no big deal, right? Another risk on asset class. I don't think people have like made, I don't think get average, even the average finance guy has kind of made that next step and said, okay, this is actually something really systemically important. Mm-hmm. And we need to be considering it just as, as, just as much as fiat or anything else as far as markets are concerned. And yeah, at Bloomberg, I, I mean, my, my first interaction with crypto was basically, well, uh, I'll say cryptography was at a distance, basically doing um, key to key encryption for some parts of our message system. And I was, I was responsible for certain elements of that. And without getting too much detail, I was, I was thinking to myself like, wow, this is pretty cool tech. What else is there out there in this capacity? Right. Cause you're just reading yeah. to, to learn about certain things as a, as a subject matter expert. And then, and you start to discover, you know, that's where I start to uncover things about like Ethereum and pro- programmatic money and global settlement computer. And I was like, wow, this, this idea, Bitcoin is fantastic. And I, I kept it at a distance. I wasn't really super into it as it, as it was, but Ethereum really got me going. And I had a friend who said, you need to pay attention to this. Right. And, yeah. and after, after that point, I started looking very deeply into the asset and said, this is an incredible piece of technology that it seems silly today. And I don't think a lot of us really took the initiative to expose well, I, ourselves. Yeah, I, I, had that, but, I had that experience yeah. when I went over to Consensus and met Joe Lubin and he explained the world computer to me and my, my mind just kind of like went boom, you know? Like, yeah, that's that's the, I think that's the epicenter for a lot of a lot of people's curiosities when they finally, when they figure out that the settlement of assets, of, of trades or of exchange of anything digital could, could happen in a decentralized fashion, more decentralized fashion. Yeah. That blows people's minds. You don't it's need to have... Like, yeah, you don't need to have central clearing. You don't need to have all these parties that are taking fees. You can just have one powerful uh, consensus that basically takes care of that. And you can have programmatic things there. How did you you land there? You started in 2018, I think? Yeah. So basically from 2015 to 2017, I was just on my own in crypto. I was like, I need to work on this. So I quit Bloomberg dabbled around in some other things for a while, but ultimately was just so drawn to crypto that I had to just do it, right? I was just working, I was just researching full-time trading during this big, you know, whatever, this big run-up and on my own, just experimenting, you know, and and by, by, by the time 2017 starting to roll around into 2016, I was like, this, this is going to go somewhere. I saw the hype phase and I was like, all right, this is obviously a, a speculative cycle. I think everyone saw that at that point, but I knew that out of speculation comes something good always. You know, usually there's some nugget of goodness that comes out of that. Um, and so I basically just was bugging consent. One of my friends actually, um, who I, I won't name, but is is involved at, um, you know, involved at a very high level in crypto at a major financial institution. At the time, we was, uh, was working on a startup and was a consultant. And we met at an event and he's like, you, if you want to work in this industry full-time, you got to try consensus. They're like the mm-hmm. best, right? And this is, this is, you know, soon after they started, of course, it was not the early, early days. It wasn't, wasn't that at all, but it was kind of the big hiring boom. But that whole year, I was basically just bugging consensus, anyone I could at that company to give me a shot. And I was just, te- you know, telegramming people, emailing people over the course of about six to eight months. It took me to finally get in at the um, uh, P- consensus capital team, which did some of the token stuff. It did some consulting work um, with Token Foundry, you know, at a distance, and um, all these different projects. Um, and so I, I've managed to get an interview there, and they were looking for someone that had this business sense, but it could also digest more technical. Uh, papers and 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 uh, distill that, and so that was kind of where I found my stride there. And were they um, some of the other projects there? Was it like Ujo Music? And- oh yeah, tons of early experimentation with identity, with music, with sports. Did I think Meta- they did actually MetaMask did have everything. Come out of there at that point. Yes, yeah. yeah MetaMask right. would ju- had just started and was, and that's why. Like, I think like, personally, I really loved the because just because I've been you know, I've been around it for so long, but um, it was basically a period of time. Um, that's all the creation of the earliest primitives, primitive apps that were 
the model for everybody else. Yeah. The coolest. I mean, even though they had, I think they actually did have the right ideas from a lot of these apps. Many of them were just way, way too early, right? You know, they had real world asset stuff. They had ID just too early. Yeah. I, w- I did a lot of reporting on this project that I thought was really cool. It was a guy who was decentralizing like solar power and, and putting, oh, yeah. uh, it was, grid. yeah, the, yeah. Grid. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, really cool stuff. Yeah, he was doing you know with with people in Brooklyn, like uh, in yeah. sort of in my neighborhood, and and I just I just could not get that story right because it just it was so early. Yeah. It was like you're not what they wanted to do was you know somehow track the green energy that was being created by the solar panels with a blockchain that then you could use you know so you could be like off the grid sort of right. But at that point. All that energy got sent over to uh, PG&E, you know, and it got mixed with everything else. So there was no way to kind of, uh, I, don't, I yeah. don't know if that's still the case. But anyway, it, it was a very fascinating idea, but it's just not something that I could turn into a concrete news story. But um, there was a lot of that great thinking. Oh, man. There was, I mean, those days were so exciting just because of the experimentation. Joe's a pioneer, right? He just had this, he had this vision that I think even a lot of the people that came there were like a little skeptical about but ultimately trusted him that he kind of knew what direction this went. And he was right. I mean, he was right about a lot of these things that seem absolutely crazy. It seemed at the time absolutely crazy, um, you know, that we would threaten, not, I would say threaten, but that we would have, that, that Ethereum would grow to this enormous size, that, that, it, that it could potentially be the foundation for all of finance. Yeah. And that was a wild idea. You know, even the early stages of NFTs and art and crypto kitties. I remember when it was clogging Ethereum when I was there. Just like yeah. just crazy things that were were so far fetched and so crazy at the time, but now make perfect sense in retrospect. Um, that was probably the most amazing experience. From, I think my entire career so far was just was just being there during that time. Yeah, Joe. Joe is a true visionary. I think I, yeah, I said absolutely. in my book, he is a true believer from the he very is, beginning. Yeah, for sure, and he was so important to that project because. There were a lot of brilliant people working on it, but Joe had the ability to explain it to people and to like put it out there into yeah. the public uh, realm and get people to like get excited about it. Um, he so. really did. He was the best. Um, he was on CNBC and all these things. You probably saw it, probably even on, maybe I'm at Bloomberg back then, just constantly kind of explaining what's going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. And he was the first voice of reason from the industry that I think made sense. There's There's been a lot of Bitcoiners that had basically espoused their their kind of viewpoint. And that's a viewpoint that not everyone shares the more maxi crypto maxi, you know, Bitcoin, sorry, Bitcoin maxi position. Right. Like it's going to replace the dollar. Or just that it's going to be the global reserve currency. And that might be true. I don't know, but it is a single myopic viewpoint. And I think they might be right, but it didn't explain to the average person why they should care and they should, or how they could even use this stuff. And it still is struggling. I mean, I think crypto actually struggles with a, a massive adoption and UX problem. And that's part and parcel to like what we do, but also to just the, you know, why our pond is so small and why, you know, for DeFi, it's really just a puddle. Yeah. Well, let's, let's jump into Bracket Labs. Yeah, sure. What, where did the idea come from? What was the problem that you kind of, that right. you wanted to solve? So actually it started very differently than what it is today. So when we originally looked at crypto, my team, a small team, which, you know, kind of came out of all of the businesses, relationships that, I, that we've had um, recently. My my one co-founder, Pelly, she was she and I worked together on a um, uh, an advisory firm called Deer Creek, and and we basically were like, hey, we really need to move into products eventually. We need to we need to get get to this point. After we left consensus together, we actually said, hey, let's work together on this on this business. And we've been working together ever since. And then uh, we met our, our co-founder, our third co-founder, um, our CTO Jason, uh, a little bit soon after. Um, probably 2021. And we said, Hey, you know, what, what can we, what can we actually solve that makes sense on the product side? And originally we said, well, can we provide users with more comfort in trading uh, crypto assets, you know, as, as far as like downside protection, because at the time things were extremely volatile, right? Mm-hmm. Things were extremely volatile. People were losing money quickly because they didn't know what they were buying or they didn't know that things could be that volatile, but you know, volatility in crypto is a, it's more of a fat tail asset. So you have these moments of extreme volatility and then you have like a sideways kind of chop. And then another moment of extreme volatility and sideways chop, even in trending markets it tends to behave like that um, from a volatility perspective. And so when the markets changed and, um, unfortunately, we had some kind of poor timing after we started the business. Um, 
the markets just completely collapsed after the Terra thing happened. You know, Terra Luna, if you're familiar with that yep. whole fiasco, the kind of death spiral of of the asset. And then we had the FTX problem. And so markets kind of just got, the liquidity got sucked out of the markets. And basically we were left with some core DeFi experimenters and gambling, right? It's kind of like, not gambling, but you know, people who are just messing around. Monkey JPEGs. Yeah, just funky JPEGs, all kinds of wild (laughs) stuff. And so we said, okay, how can we, with the initial concept of like providing almost like an insurance product to people who are buying on major exchanges with the kind of outflow of capital and no inflow of new people that needed that kind of product, what can we do with the technology that we developed to make it useful? And we said, well, volatility, people have lots of different ways to play directional price, right? You can buy a perp, you can buy a leveraged long, you can do that. You can just buy long, you can buy, you can buy short, you can, put, you can play margin, right? But there's no way to say, well, I don't know if I really know which direction the market's going to go. I just know things are going to be chaotic or not chaotic. And just having that kind of exposure simply in a very simple package uh, was not a possibility before, right? As you mentioned, doing anything with structured products, and for those who are not familiar with them, basically taking a derivative, say an option or several options and creating this this effect, right? Like, oh, this makes money in these conditions, or this right. product makes like money in these conditions. Yeah, a collar, an iron yeah. condor, right. any of these right. wild kind of ideas. So you've that got like so one, just familiar. to slow it down for people, you've got one yeah. option that is in the money if things go down, and then right. one option that's in the money if things go up, and you kind of bracket them, uh, like yeah. bracket labs, right? And that's, uh, so in the, right. in between those two options, that's, that's a great place for you to make money yeah, with these, that strategy. People don't even understand the, or they don't understand the more complex jargon of finance. No one really does, right? It's meant to be that way for a lot of reasons. And I've learned that over the years. It's just, it's kind of this obfuscating force that keeps people out. And it's also a complex, like you said, it is an inherently complex. Trading structured products or creating option strategies, you know, uh, you know, making money when something hits a certain price on the upside or the downside and packaging that into something that is coherent and cohesive and hedged out or whatever is very challenging. Right. It's for the only, for the almost the most sophisticated people. And it's a massive market in traditional finance. However, the average user, even in DeFi is less sophisticated and they they want more fun, but the effects of structured products are great. You know, people can get exposure to just volatility within a range of price or in general. That's kind of what we figured out how to do. We said, whoa, we could actually take what options did for traditional finance and try to create a native version of that on crypto without all the issues and complexities that you have for TradFi that are very specific to the infrastructure of traditional finance. For instance, you know, uh, the pricing of these products in traditional finance can be, they can be repriced the premium, like what you would pay to get exposure to a certain asset or a certain product. Um, that can be done at the speed of light almost, right? Because of the fat pipes, the hardware that traditional finance has developed, it, very, very quick. But blockchains don't work like that. Blockchains work very distinctly around, um, you know, having a transaction get confirmed. That takes a little time, even on the fastest blockchains. And so we said that, that model of pricing just won't work on on chain. So to solve a problem like, for instance, how can we give users the um, ex, uh, exposure to simple structured products that deliver a a, a desired effect uh, without having to put together all this craziness? Um, how could we do that with 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 traditional products? We had to change them. And so part of our fundamental innovation is taking these otherwise super uh, you know, traditional things and kind of rebuilding them for an adaptive pricing model on chain without getting into nitty gritty, basically making it work for on chain. And we could at that point create really interesting volatility based products. You know, markets go up, they go down, they're chaotic that don't necessarily rely on price. Yeah. And that is very useful for even the novice trader who says, I don't know which direction markets are going. I just want something that can pay me if I, if it gets, uh, if it gets volatile, if it gets crazy. Right. And that's something that's super useful for most traders. Let me ask you this though. So in the traditional financial world, derivatives yeah. are usually restricted because the downside is unlimited, right? Like yeah. there is mm-hmm. no, like with a derivative. It, could, it can be, it can be, it not can necessarily, be, but not necessarily. it can be unlimited. If you're the doing losses, naked The losses naked that you positions. can accrue on a yeah. derivative are far greater than like a stock can just go to zero, but a derivative can keep going past zero. And so that's why they're, you know, treated this way. How are you going to make sure that doesn't happen to retail folks in the DeFi space where that you're aiming at here? Yeah, so that's a really good point. I think in any product, 
whether that be perps, right, perpetual futures, or any kind of popular DeFi product, there's always they're always trying to build something in that puts some guardrail up. Yeah, people are excited. Users are in, in DeFi are excited by leverage. They're excited by the potential of upside and maybe the lack of downside, right? And so the the way we did it is we in the name bracket, right? There's a limited range over which you can make money or in which you make money. For instance, our biggest kind of new product concept, and we've, trust me, we've, we've experimented with, as I've mentioned already, plenty of different types of uh, use cases of this fundamental pricing technology that we developed, this bracketed price, you know, pricing. And um, what we've kind of come up with is a product that works well just for volatility. Like, is it volatile? Is it not? The original kind of attempt at that was called channel. And basically that did deliver kind of a leveraged payout over a range. And basically you had to, as the, as the buyer, you wanted that to stay within a certain price range. And it made money the longer it stayed in until it first broke out. So it was very simple. The concept was very simple. But um, the way that our model works is that you're, you're not going to get, there's no negative, there's no like way you can lose more money than you put in. So you so it's like smart contract based, and if it hits a certain target, or fully certain, decentralized. Well, not fully, but like the, the 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 smart contract control the funds, right? So that's where all the execution happens. Yeah. And so your funds are always kind of in your control, in other words, it's like yeah. you would in other DeFi products. Like but you yes. said, yeah, this is on chain, which is cool. And then I love that, like with a smart contract, you like when. You know, if it's happening in other parts of DeFi, right? When you get liquidated because you know your collateral has reached a certain point, you know that's it. It's just it's automatic, and you're out of that, you know, trade. Um, so that's kind of how the brackets work here as well. You just program. Yeah, there's it. no product that we offer where you can lose more than you have. In other words, um, and actually, in the new in the new products that we're releasing, which is kind of an amalgamation of everything we've learned about. We've basically done a bunch of soft launches with with like uh, products that we've come out with that um, where I think we're really quite good products, but because the market is the way it is and market makers and others are not really providing funding, it's heavily reliant on like priced, like appropriate pricing. And when there's no appropriate pricing, obviously it looks like it's not attractive, but in the newest product we're coming out with, which takes that channel concept, right? Make more money, the more time it stays in a range. Um, we call it, you know, range bound, which is something that other big, big uh, exchanges are, are experimenting with as well, like Binance and others. Um, this product actually, you never, as, as a buyer of the stay inside, like, hey, I want to, I want to stay in. Um, you don't lose money more than you have. You actually accrue every second you stay in. So we took this concept of what is traditionally a, a, a you know, someone who, who buys volatility, like you're buying options in the real world, or you're selling volatility, right? You're, you're, you're writing options. That's a very complicated process. Yeah. And we basically decided, hey, let's take those kind of parties and make them a little more fun. So the, 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 op, you know, the, the, our product is a new product called Passage, which takes that concept from, from channel, um, has a stay in buyer and a breakout buyer. Someone who says, I think the, the asset will be not that volatile. And then the breakout buyer is saying, Hey, I think I think the 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 asset will be very volatile, you know, and we have a two day or one day break even on this product, for instance. And so we took that concept, distilled it down to like a very simple gamified product that is is fair to the buyer and the seller, and actually creates a marketplace for this type of volatility that you'd be familiar with, looking at say like a Uniswap or something. So you can get you can buy these products and accumulate based on your position in a short term kind of uh, contract. And so this. So this something's very, you know, once the, once people see it, I think they'll be like, wow, this is actually really easy to understand and takes what is usually an extremely sophisticated thing and distills it into a product that's relative, that's fair. And that, um, I think very fun. And so I think the, it's missing from, from DeFi yeah. a lot. The market structure nerd in me wants to know, like, how does that trade make money when you're in that right in that range? Like, where, where, how are you making money from that? Again, without getting too much in the weeds, basically what's happening is it's a matched Pair. So on Passage, this new product that we'll be releasing on Testnet um, the next month, uh, basically what's happening is we have a peer-to-peer market. For the first time, we basically invented this in order to make to make it work without a market maker setting price, which is always hard, right? Because if the pricing isn't good, like I said, it doesn't doesn't work. But in this in this in this uh, market, you have an estimated price based on our model for volatility. So it's just and the user doesn't need to know really much about that besides that it's the kind of market price, and then. Um, it's a matched pair. So it's peer to peer. One person takes a stay in, the other person takes a breakout. We have an order book model. So it matches those folks if they cross. And 
if, and that's why you have a max payout in this product of like two times. So it's not some crazy leverage product. Mm-hmm. And we've attempted, we've, we've attempted things with leverage, uh, more leverage than that, and found out the asymmetric risk from a funder taking on a fully collateralized, you know, uh, volatile, like selling volatility, fully collateralized is taking on a lot of risk and they're going to price the product pretty poorly or at least pretty in their mind fairly, which might not be fun for the buyer who's taking none of that risk besides their initial uh, investment, right? Like okay. say 10 bucks, right? Yeah. So they're saying I, in a 10 times product, I can make a hundred bucks, but the funder has to lock up a hundred dollars in collateral. So it's very fair. It's fully collateralized, but the more leverage you have, sometimes the better, the worse the pricing. So in this new product, it's a matched pair and you accumulate if you're familiar with like a corridor uh, style product, you you accumulate, but in our product is by time. So in a two-day contract, the break-even's one day. So the stay-in accumulates from zero. So let's say $200 are in the in the pool, right, between those two users, uh, peer, uh, peer one, peer two, peer one's taking the stay-in, peer two is buying the breakout of that channel, uh, that passage. The stay-in buyer starts at zero and accumulates every second. And the breakout starts at the 200 and, and it goes down every second. Okay. So it's a time-based payoff within uh, a, a range of price. And so the price has to kind of stay that's, in yeah, that range. Exactly. And so Assuming it's really fun. It's there. so much fun, right? Mm-hmm. For a user to be like, I could take a, a position on the, the, the wildness of the market without having to really say if it's going to go up or down. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you're talking about timing and, and sometimes bad timing, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like on-chain summer, you know, is is in full effect, and you guys are on-chain, so that seems like good timing for you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. What uh, you've been, you know, through this a, a few times now, so like yeah. the bigger picture, where do you think things stand? Um, just in terms of the the winter and you know uh, enthusiasm of, of folks coming back, do you, do you see that anytime soon, or what, what's your kind of um, Right. What, a great you question. Your finger up into the wind. What do you What do you see? Yeah. If I'm going to shake the eight ball and get an answer or look into the crystal ball, I'm I'm thinking. You know, the summer is going to remain pretty slow and sideways. August is historically just low volatility in general because everyone's on vacation. Europe's off. Everyone's just not doing much. But we're talking macro, real big picture. What happens? I think there's been some really great research on. Um, the cyclical nature of crypto and how many years it takes to kind of come back. But usually the Bitcoin happening coincides with the, you know, the beginnings of the bull market. I think we're actually in the very early innings of that now. Just like you said, there the the, the quote unquote vibe shift is here, right? We have we have uh, large institutions signaling that they want to support crypto. Mm-hmm. We have the largest asset manager in the world basically saying we're BlackRock, the ETF. We have BlackRock ETF, which is an exchange exchange traded fund. Basically saying, based on we, Bitcoin. Yeah. right, based on Bitcoin, we're going to hold Bitcoin in custody and sell a fund that basically rebalances. Um, and that's an, an immense positive vote of confidence. Larry Fink has also expressed that he's, you know, the company expressed the, you know, positive uh, features of Bitcoin on, which has been a massive change from previous comments. And I think um, those, all those things are going to coalesce into a, um, a more positive market in, in the fall, like late fall, early winter. And hopefully nothing macro happens besides that. But I'd imagine the markets won't really pick up until until that happening event occurs going into that, I think, in April 2024. So I think we will have these like sideways sideways chop for a while, which is great for us, right? Because our product, kind of, <laughs> our passage product is actually really great for sideways chop. Right. But ultimately, um, we think that the markets will probably improve by then. Um, given all that positive momentum and then the election cycle kind of focusing on that for a while and yeah. new administration coming in in the next you know couple of years. So it's that's the timeline, I think, things for for everything to improve. But those who are building now and can survive, just stay, keep their companies alive until then, I think are in a really good position um, because all the innovation is happening now. Yeah. All the companies building truly well, that's innovative what I was things. Ask. Are you uh, not just like on the pricing side? Yeah. Are you getting um, any indications of cool new Products yeah. like a like you know NFTs kind of you know took everyone by storm uh, coming out of the last uh, crypto winter. Uh, do, are you getting any indication of of anything like that? You know, it's a split world. I think on one on one side you're seeing um, a lot more layer twos launching with base and Arbitrum getting more traction, more products. But a lot of the products are very similar. So unfortunately, because Perpetual Futures had, like for instance, Perpetual Futures, right? The product took many years to actually get traction with BitMEX um, doing what they were doing. 
But it did. It, then when it finally went on chain, it kind of exploded because it was a simple product people kind of, well, not simple, but it was a product people could understand, go long, add lots of leverage, go short, add lots of leverage, right? Very degen, extremely degen. Most people lose in that product, but still, it's very popular. Those launched all over the place with minor differences, right? Oh, one is more leverage, one is less leverage. Obviously, it's a, more of an experiment in on-chain uh, application than it is a useful financial tool for the most sophisticated investors. But those early experiments have led to some really cool concepts, some really interesting uh, experiments in like cross margining on chain, some very, I think some, some, some things that will become primitives for the next cycle and more sophisticated products. And that's the same thing we see with us too. It's we're innovative in the current form. Is it, is it the final form? Probably not, right? We'll probably have a, a very niche product that ends up being popular in a, in a niche. And then over time, as markets mature, you, you grow into that market. I think the most innovative thing that we've seen uh, beyond just slight improvements or new versions of DEXs and lending and borrowing, right? The, the fundamentals of all markets, you know, debt markets and things, credit, is this uh, closing of the gap between, uh, between off-chain Real world, the people call real world assets RWA, mm-hmm. and on chain uh, DeFi, and obviously the, the killer product there is the U.S. Treasury bill, right? It's yielding what four or five percent or something, and so folks really want to get access to that, especially if their capital is on on chain. And so there's products like Ando and Open Eden in Singapore that are exposing investors to on chain to buy Treasury bills, basically on chain, and they're whitelisted, and it's a very uh, tailored process because it is a financial product that's regulated, right? Um, and you know, I think as a result of that, we've seen early, early experiments of with with real world assets start to make sense. You know, uh, funding credit deals that might be difficult to fund for traditional uh, traditional financiers. Financiers, um, uh, pr- uh, platforms like uh, I think it's Centrifuge that have been around for a while. Like we've seen that even in the early days of consensus, these off basically a product that offers you know, uh, loans that can be collateralized by crypto, mm-hmm. right. That can be underwritten in, in, in the, in the web three space. So these crossing over of, of real world use cases to on chain, I think is very exciting. And I think that is, was very teeny tiny for the longest time because the deals were kind of weird. They were third world, you know, buy now, pay later type products <laughs> that were being underwritten. So very scary stuff that we've seen. Uh, but I think the long, the long term of that is, that's where it's going, right? Yeah. It's going it's, to be it's this what you guys one are world, doing, right? You're bringing yeah. a traditional financial product on chain, and it doesn't, it didn't exist before, and that's it what, didn't exist in this form. In this it didn't, form, right. it didn't exist in I'm, this in this type of way. Yeah. And I think people like us that are trying to do that do have to skate the line of we're in a puddle. We have to do something fun at first, but everyone's eyes are on this giant tidal wave of real capital. The trillions of dollars sitting on the sidelines, right? We have X, we have this insane historic amount of liquidity just sitting in the sidelines that eventually will make its way into on-chain finance, as people are calling it now. And what the, what what of those is successful? I think depends on the um, you know the government's uh, interest rates, right? We see usually a a retraction from risk in crypto when when the interest rates go up and the interest rates are down and treasuries aren't yielding, people go to more risk on assets. So I think that cyclicality will affect crypto and how we come back. But right now, that on-chain world, the treasuries on-chain are allowing us a, a kind of a window into what could be and what people have been dreaming about for the last five years on Ethereum, which is a whole world of on-chain finance that blurs the line between DeFi kind of silliness, right, and and real-world useful financial products that um, anyone of yeah, that, merit could use. And that world will merge. It's just going to take, I think, a little bit longer than we anticipate. Yeah, that's my gut feeling right now too. It's not going to be retail that brings this back. It's going to be the Black Rocks and very you know, possible. the, the right. very large institutional players who have had a lot of time to to figure this out and do their research and get comfortable with it. And I think they're just waiting to get in at the right time. And then that's going to make the markets move and things will happen. And that's going to get the attention of retail folks. And, you know, hopefully there's some people out there who, you know, didn't get burned by FTX uh, or, you know, any of the other kind of yeah. calamities that we've had in the last year or so. But I think that, yeah, that tidal wave is, is I think, going to come from the JP Morgans and the Black Rocks. Oh, they and, want it so know. bad. I mean, yeah. in the early days of talking to these folks, when I was at Consensus, um, they were curious, but they weren't committing. Then they were, I, wouldn't, I don't want to use the word undermining, but they tried to build, basically build it themselves, right? They have their own 
yeah. version of Ethereum. They tried, yeah, they have yeah, their own internal Ethereum coins. Alliance. Oh yeah, all this and, stuff like that. I mean, that yeah. was interesting at the time. Um, and then now I think people are just accepting the fact that while private networks will probably always exist in some sort of enclave for very specific products and very very specific counterparty use cases, the um, the big ones, the big use cases like FX are going to be on chain for real. I think we're all coming to that conclusion that the FX mar- money markets, FX markets are going to be on chain. It's just so much easier to get around to get around the red tape and cost of just sending money around and swapping money into large pools. I mean, it, while there were some absolute calamities rec- uh, with Terra and as, as well as um, uh, recently with Curve, the idea of a massive money market on chain where you can swap in and out of highly liquid one-to-one backed stable coins is an incredible innovation that should not be undersold. Yeah. And I think that in and of itself could be what brings in a lot of institutional investors to the liquidity and um, or sorry, to the uh, utility that crypto provides. And hopefully products like us kind of can live in that wake, right? Where mm-hmm. they're like, oh, now I need to do this. Now I need to do that. And mm-hmm. the product's matured and there's a more professional version. And there's more, you know, uh, more sophisticated uh, users who are actually bringing capital to do it specifically on chain as opposed to centralized yeah. exchanges that are just dealing in crypto. I think that's where the trust barrier will, is and hopefully we can cross it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Mike, this has been fantastic. I really enjoyed uh, speaking to you. Thanks for for sharing um, your your story with me. And tell people where they can find you and, and how they can find more info about Bracket Labs. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Twitter mostly. Uh, Rare Mike is my handle at Rare Mike, and then uh, Bracket Labs is at Bracket underscore Labs underscore. And we're you know we're basically um, leaking out some more information as we go on our new launch for this new product that you know like again it's called Passage, which will be out in August, end of August in Testnet, and we'll be revealing a lot more about that real soon. And you can pretty much learn any, anything you want to know about um, those products and the new product. Uh, at at the Twitter page, and uh, cool. we're really excited to share that with everybody. Yeah, and hopefully sooner rather than later, you'll be offering stuff in the U.S. I would love that. You know, based on what we talked about, it's just I don't know. It's going to be tough uh, at yeah. the moment. We're pretty much going to be forced to not. I mean, we we we, we don't today, but we're going to be forced to just kind of exclude the U.S. as a general yeah. market. That's that's what's happening, folks. Yeah, um, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, again, Mike, thanks again so much for the time. I really appreciate it. It's yeah. a fascinating conversation. Thanks for having me, Matt. I love talking to uh, former Bloombergers myself. So yep. really yep. appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Thanks. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. 